Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. We're in a series on this letter to the communities in Galatia, this region in modern-day Turkey. We're in a series studying this letter And the more I'm getting into this letter, the more I'm getting into this 2,000-year-old ancient text, the more it's just coming to life for me personally. It it meets me in my life. And also, I believe it's meeting us in this cultural moment that we are in. And in my reading, I think chapter 2, as we are in the second week, chapter 2, I think this is a pivotal chapter for us to understand the rest of the letter. So many things hinges on what happens in this chapter, and I hope that each of us are doing our own readings throughout the week, reading the same chapter uh, throughout the week so we each can get the most out of it. But in chapter 2, what we have in the structure is the first half, Paul is describing a very particular situation, something that's happened. But then the second half, he explains why it matters. Now, something that's important to know in this chapter is two main characters that we're talking about uh, they're the two main people that God is using in this Christian movement. There's Peter, who's also known as Cephas. You'll hear that name in this chapter. Peter is the same disciple of Jesus who was once a fisherman. He was kind of bold. He was courageous. He was the one that wanted to walk with Jesus on the water, but ended up falling in the water, sinking in the water. He's also the same one who promised never to betray Jesus, but then denied him three times the, 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 days, the day before he was crucified. This is the same uh, Peter that Jesus promised, upon you, upon you, you rock, I'm going to build my church. And so we see Christ building the church through this individual Peter, and he was the leader in Jerusalem. So he was taking the Christian movement to the people of Israel, but God had plans outside of Israel, and that's where Paul steps in. Paul was a very zealous Jewish leader who was violently going against the way of Christ, the the Christ movement, the movement of the gospel. And through this beautiful reversal, God met Paul and destroyed his life and rebuilt it 
in this beautiful, redemptive way in which Paul was being used by God to to go and take the message, the good news of Jesus to the rest of the world. And we see Paul being used to do that. He was much like a, a church planter. He traveled to different parts of that area, starting new Christian communities and helping the gospel spread there. And so we see uh, these are the two different main leaders in the church, in that early church day. And we find those two characters here in chapter two. After spending some time apart, Paul decided to go back to Jerusalem to meet with those Jewish leaders to make sure that they knew the message that he was sharing and how God was, how God was, uh, was using his words and his ministry to bring about this profound change. In verse 2 in chapter 2, it said, Paul said this, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not, run, run, had not been running my race in vain. Paul wanted, he was like checking in with the mothership, coming, coming back to the headquarters. Hey, this is what I'm teaching. I just want to make sure we are on the same page, right? We're, we're good with this message. Uh, Paul wanted to make sure that he wasn't running a race in vain. And they validated Paul's message and his work. They said, keep it up. And then in verse 7, Paul wrote this. They recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter has been to the circumcised. So Peter to the people of Israel, Paul to the uncircumcised people or the people outside of Israel. So what's the deal with circumcision? It's, it's, it's kind of a funny topic, but you can't understand all of this letter without really looking at that. So in the Old Testament, God wanted people set apart, unique, dis, distinct. And so these codes were created and passed down and these practices were made to ensure that the people were set apart, distinct from the rest of the people of the world. And if they abided by these codes, then they would be considered clean. They could enter into the temple, be able to enter into table fellowship, share meals with other people. They could go to the sanctuary. Uh, and if they, uh, these prohibitions, these codes included what people could touch. It included if people were bleeding. It included what people could wear. But the primary two issues that were focused on were around the males being circumcised and about what food you could eat. And of course, that's what the two things most men care about, right? And it, that was passed down from generation to generation. But these became the markers of who was in and who was out, who was included, who was excluded. And whole people groups, races, nationalities, were deemed unclean and unworthy to enter into God's presence based on these codes and practices. Do you see how racial superiority could creep into religious devotion if that were the case? And this is where things get even more complicated. Jesus steps onto the scene and he does not care about some of these codes. He doesn't honor some of these rules. His gospel and his kingdom seems to be far more inclusive than many of those Old Testament laws and provisions made themselves to be. And Jesus seemed to go after those people who were often deemed the unclean. He was made unclean by acknowledging that he was touched by a woman who had been bleeding for years. 
He made a public declaration that that was the case and welcomed it. He was defiled by touching people with skin diseases, choosing to heal them through touch. He broke bread with the wrong race, the wrong ethnicity, the people who were deemed unclean. Jesus was showing again and again and again that his kingdom would not be bound by the rules that had been passed down. It was going to be far more expansive than that. Now, that reality was hard for many from the Jewish tradition to embrace. And the early church would begin to wrestle with how Jewish does one person need to be to be Christian? Because they saw Jesus was really a Jew coming to to fulfill the promise of salvation. And so they were wrestling with, if someone wants to be a follower of Jesus, how Jewish do they have to be? And many ways, that stigma and exclusiveness was held in many pockets of the faith. This is the whole conflict we're talking about here in chapter two. And it all revolved around a meal. Now, I promise, as you read this story, this will come across like sensitive kids at a middle school cafeteria. And it's probably because we all are sensitive kids like we're in middle school. But stay with me here. So in verse 11, this is what happens. Paul is writing to the people of Galatia, uh, talking about the situation, this conflict. He said, when Cephas, remember who is Paul, or Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, a a non-Jewish community, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, um, he used to eat with Gentiles. So Peter used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, these Jewish leaders and individuals, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. (laughs) So Peter was sharing meals with Gentiles and he accepted them, broke bread with them, but then all of a sudden, the other crew shows up. You know the scene from every, like, high school drama movie of like, you're hanging out with each other, then the alpha male or the cool cheerleader shows up and they're like, what do you do eating with them? Uh, Those, you know, band dorks or whatever it might be. And if anyone wants to know where I'm at in this story, this is me when I grew up. This is my picture here. You can see where I was (laughs) in high school. That was me. So all of a sudden, Peter pulled away. He pulled away. And he shows that he is still bound, not bound by the Old Testament laws, but he is actually bound by what? The approval of those individuals. He cares desperately that his image is that he is religious, he's fervent. He's not, you know, I don't want to be seen as someone who's so inclusive. I don't want to be seen as someone who's letting go of the rules of the past. And so Peter pulls away from those individuals. But this really, really angered Paul. This is what he went on to write in verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, that's the issue. It's not just about who's eating with who. It's about the truth of the gospel, acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, who is Peter, I said in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You're forcing these Gentiles to act like us Jews if if they want to belong. How 
the world. But you're not even living like that. This treatment did not line up with the gospel. It didn't didn't line up with the way that Jesus lived and Jesus taught his life. Why? I think this moment, we need to remember what the table meant and how Jesus used the table. There is perhaps no greater marker for a relationship in that day and age than what happens around a table. To share a meal means sharing intimacy, friendship, mutuality. And the Jewish community was strict on who they could break bread with and who they couldn't. There's this clear distinction of who was in and out. And then the gospel of Jesus changed all of that. The despised broke bread with the king. Outcasts and rejects sat down at Jesus' table. Sinners and screw-ups, they sat across the Savior. The sick, women, children, foreigners, they all could pull up a chair. It defied all customs and rules. I think it's important for us to note that Jesus didn't create a synagogue or a temple. Jesus created a table, a place of belonging, a provision, a family. But there was a rule. There was a rule about who could sit at Jesus' table. It wasn't just anyone. The rule was the table would be reserved for only those who are hungry and thirsty for grace. That's the only rule it seems like Jesus lived with. That those who came empty would leave filled, and those who came already filled would somehow leave empty. That is a picture of Jesus' gospel. Though the table was once a place of exclusiveness and judgment, with Jesus it would be a place of grace Unity, like just this broad mercy that would include people into a new family. Acceptance and compassion would replace tribalism, ethnic hatred. And Paul hated seeing the table used and abused by Christian leaders in ways that was not in line with the gospel. So that's what happened. That's, That's the issue that took place that we find here in chapter two. But then Paul turns the conversation to say, this is why this matters. This is why this is so important. And Paul begins to paint a beautiful picture that's timeless for us here 2,000 years later. And he begins to talk about how we are made right with God. Verse 15, he says, he writes, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The idea of being justified is is the idea of being made right in God's eyes. And what Paul is saying is moral scorekeeping will always fail us. It will never be enough. And we know this. We know that that whatever the works might be, whether eating with the right people or being circumcised, will never be enough. Or having the, enough quiet times or giving enough to the poor or not commi- committing obvious sins. All these are works and they will never be enough. And he's saying, what, so there's something else. So he goes on by, by saying, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified, made right, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
Now, we might hear that and go, oh, that sounds great, like great news. By faith is the only way we're made right. Yet somehow, it just seems like the default thinking that we live in is that we have to earn God's approval. God's smile is reserved when we're on our A game. And that constant look of disappointment is what we get the rest of our life. In many ways, our picture of God is much like our picture of Santa. <laughs> what do we believe about Santa? Well, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. <laughs> and, you know, we laugh about it, but that's our general idea about God, is that God is distant. We never quite see him. He kind of lingers around, but he always sees us, always sees us, good or bad. You're always uh, seen by God, and God has this look of, you better be a good boy, better be a bad, a, a good girl. You will be rewarded, and if you're bad, well, then you're on the naughty list, and you're given a lump of coal. That is not Jesus's good news, Somehow that's the basis of most of our concepts of religion. Uh, in, in studying this passage, I, I stumbled upon a teaching that um, a New York pastor, Tim Keller, he shared around the same uh, concept. And for him, what, the way he uh, considered this issue is around the importance of order. Our concepts of religion and our concept of the gospel it really breaks down on the order of our beliefs. So Here's, here's one way you break it down. This is the old order of religion, is if a person places their faith in God and lives according to the law, then you will be saved. So it begins with trusting in God and then working out that salvation. It begins, it's the second step is like earning that, that salvation and you will be saved. But there's a different order. And that really was the order of much of the understanding of the Old Testament God. But with Jesus, this is the new order, is because of God's great mercy, because of what Jesus has already done, place your faith in Christ and you will be saved. And because of that work, because of that experience of salvation, you will naturally want to live differently. It all flows out of this new identity. Now, do you see the difference the subtle difference, but that reordering makes all the difference in the world. And the sad thing is that we seem to be predisposed to believe that. We are predisposed to believe that God's saving work, God's grace and pleasure and delight of us, comes at the end of our works. Uh, Tim Keller, he would often say, that the difference between religion and the gospel is that religion is our attempt to get to God, where Jesus' good news is that this is the stories of, of God's attempt to be with us, to get to us, God's relentless love for us. Now, just consider how that changes everything. Could you go back to the previous slide? Thank you. Uh, just how that changes everything. Actually, no, yeah, you can go two more. Thank you very much. So the old order of things is that uh, one person obeys to be accepted. And in the gospel, you are accepted, therefore you obey. You want to follow the ways of Jesus. You want to, to live out his good commandments. In religion, the mo motivation is self-serving. Even though it might be subtle, you might not really know it, but 
uh, it's self-serving because you hope that by your good deeds, you're tipping the scales in the right direction. Yet in the gospel, the motivation for all of our works is joy. It's this joy that over, this, like this overflow of, of grace that's already been given. In religion, someone's predisposed to anxiety and shame. Why anxiety and shame? Is because you never know when it's been enough. So there's this anxious fuel of maybe one more good work, maybe one more right thing, maybe that would tip the scales. And shame because though you know that what's before you is the right and the wrong choice, we have a tendency to make the wrong choice. And so shame creeps in and we get really good at hiding. <laughs> but what's, what's predisposed when we begin to live in the gospel is we're predisposed to gratitude. Gratitude. That seems to be the key marker for anyone who knows and follows Jesus is this overwhelming sense of thankfulness for what has been freely given. And where it lands for me, and this might ruffle some feathers, so give me grace if that's you, but it comes down to your core identity. With religion, your core identity is that you're a sinner in need of grace. But in the gospel, someone's core identity is they are God's beloved in need of nothing else. You are in need of nothing else for the delight of Jesus to be upon you. You don't need to strive or earn or throw a little more good works on the scales for you to be God's beloved child. It's freely given to you. This is, this is your core identity is you are God's beloved. We just need to live up to what we've already attained. Live into that identity that's already been bestowed upon you. Now, this is where the gospel is much more than just good advice or just a rule book. The gospel is a declaration. You are set free. You are set free from sin and brokenness, but you're also set free from empty rule-keeping, empty religion, empty laws. You're set free from that too. You're set free from actually believing that you have to earn this. Because we know that empty rule-keeping, empty laws will either lead us to being prideful for how good we do them or shameful and despondent for how impossible they seem to be. But the gospel is liberation from all that kind of bondage from the bondage of sin and empty religion. For it is by faith in Jesus that we have been set free. In this letter, Paul seems to be building his case from this specific issue to building this case of being able to make this case for what he, I think he's getting to here in, in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That old way of living is gone. That old identity is dead. I no longer cling to that broken way of living because something better is happening. Christ now lives in me. He's taken up residence in me. He's there to constantly remind me who I am. And Paul goes on to say, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith 
by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice that sequence. We live in faith for what has already happened, for God has already loved you and gave himself for you. And now striving can cease. Earning God's favor can cease. Now we live in a different way. And our primary job is to have faith in this, to believe in this, to let that faith send us into a new identity, to let that old identity die so that something better can come to life. And the chapter ends with this final point. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ has died for nothing. For Paul, what is front and center is the grace of God. Paul won't set it aside, and he's pleading for this church, do not set aside the grace of God. If being made right was found in rule-keeping, then Christ's life was a total waste. What matters in the end is our embrace and our dependence upon the grace of God. For Paul, that's what's center here. Don't set it aside. Don't set it aside. Keep it front and center. For the gospel is dependent upon the work of grace. The gospel is not plus works. That's not what the gospel is. It is not gospel plus trying our hardest. The gospel is not the gospel plus being better than those around us. The gospel is not the gospel plus shame-based striving The gospel is not the gospel plus racial superiority or tribalism or nationalism. It's not. The gospel in its truest form is the gospel plus nothing else. Nothing else. So I want to end with uh, two last thoughts. One, a question and a statement. A question for you today is, which order are you living in? Between the old order of religion or this new way of the gospel? Which order are you living in? And not just like, oh, I believe, but what are you actually living in? That for me is an important question because we could say, yeah, I subscribe to the gospel, but we still don't believe that we're accepted and loved and valued by God the way we are. Many of us are still seeking to live in such a way to be acceptable, yet we can be bold enough in faith to believe that his grace is enough. The second thought is, uh, for us, many of us have been taught that God's love and acceptance was something to be earned. And along the way, many of us have grown exhausted, jaded, maybe we feel a little bit hollow. And I just wanna say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that message has been shared with you and shared with you underneath the banner of Christianity. I just want to just declare over anyone who still feels that, that God does not love the better version of you. He doesn't love the better version of you. Jesus loves you, and he's given himself for you. And if you believe that you are too far gone, if you believe that you're too much of a screw-up, you have had too many second chances, third chances, you're not in the mold of the religious people I just want you to know that Jesus is relentless. And for those of you who identify like that, I think you're his favorite. It seems as if Jesus went straight after people who 
who feel like they were too far gone so that you could experience the extravagance of God's love. As I have heard said, true saints in this world aren't those who are, who are moral on their own. The true saints in Jesus' kingdom are those who rely constantly on the grace of God, those people who experience the grace of God like we experience air in our breathing. We need it every moment of the day. We trust in it. True saints consume grace. So for all you accidental saints out there, let us gather around Christ's table who does not pull away from people who are on the outside, people who feel unclean. May we experience the extravagant love and mercy of Jesus around his table. And may we enjoy that table with all whom Christ has invited to have a feast of the love and mercy that's given in Jesus.